Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Ghost Army Podcast. It has been a while since the last episode. I know we got really excited about uh, kicking the Ghost Army back off and getting back into some exciting bolt-action content. Uh, and then uh, 2020. Uh, and so I know that we announced we were coming back in 2020 during the lockdowns and all of that. But certain things took their toll. And one of the things that we like to do on this podcast is to make sure we know what we're talking about. Um, often, uh, when we dig into bolt action content, it's linked, uh, specifically with maybe historical context or theming forces, and you kind of want to do that right. And so today we are going to be going just like we did with the Australians in the last episode with Dave Monroe, where we talked with one of our new ghost army voices, um, one of the new spookies, so to speak. Uh, we have a, a new spooky with us again this week, and we are going to be talking about what might initially seem like a very niche conversation, and it is. But we're also going to be talking very generally about scenario design, scenarios, and we have some pretty cool tidbits about unreleased model ranges that we're going to be digging into. There's a lot going on today. So we hope you dig this episode of the Ghost Army Podcast, even if maybe you're not into uh, maybe the, the Asian theaters of uh, World War II, uh, specifically China, which is often not really known as well as the general Pacific or should, or even Europe. Uh, but of course, if we're going to be talking Chinese, I'm a very avid Chinese player. I love playing the Chinese in bolt action. I've had several Chinese armies, nationalist armies over the years. But this man puts me to shame. A man who knows way more about uh, the war in China. Of course, we are talking about Ghost Army's own John. Welcome to your own show. How you doing? Hi, Brad. Uh, good to be here. Now, you have been on Cast Ice and the LRDG2, and we've talked Judge Dredd. We've talked China in World War II. We've talked uh, all sorts of things. But today, we're going to really dig into one of your passion projects, which is Chinese armies for bolt action. I know you've done a communist army in the past, and you've done some bits and pieces for other things. But talk to us a little bit about where does your passion for uh, the, I mean, because it the war in China really did start almost a decade before, quote unquote, World War II kicked off. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of rolled in. Talk to us a little bit about this, because though I have several armies and I'm excited about it, your level of uh, interest in this particular conflict sort of puts mine to shame. Yeah, uh, certainly the the war in China, you know, the Second Sino-Japanese War, or um, or in the Asia Pacific, or, or um, whatever you want to to call it, uh, as you say, um, kicked off much earlier than what we usually consider to be World War Two. And my suspicion is that one of the reasons that it gets neglected from broader discussions of World War II is that many people regard it as an independent conflict, which is a view I have some sympathy for, but I also believe that if you want to say that the Second Sino-Japanese War was not part of 
World War II, you probably also need to exclude all of the Asia-Pacific conflict um, and bundle that all together and say, look, there was the, uh, as the, the Chinese call it, the war of Japanese aggression mm-hmm. um, and, and the fight against that. Uh, and then there's the European war, you know. So I, I feel like saying the Japanese conflict is part of World War II, but the Second Sino-Japanese War is not, is kind of having it both ways. Um you know, but all of this is, is is very much academic. At the end of the day, the conflict happened. Um, it's in the proxy. It was fought with the weapons of, of World War Two by exactly. and large, uh, and it's um, and it, it's something we can represent on the tabletop. Uh, and in fact, there are bolt action rules for it, which is super cool. Exactly. Um, so you know, which is in fact uh, as. You know, anyone who listened to the intro um, episode will know is the reason that I play Bolt Action in the first place was because it had a Chinese rule set. Yeah, I was as someone who grew up in Japan and traveled to China a lot as a child. um, I was unbelievably overjoyed when the Japanese got an army list. But then in my wildest dreams, I never thought that we would see a proper Chinese army list. I mean, there are so many, quote unquote, Mm. minor powers um, that don't have proper rules representation in bolt action. I mean, we only just got rules for Canada, and Canada's a huge mm-hmm. country, contributed a lot to World War II. But even by my saying a minor power, that shows a massive amount of ego and um, ignorance because mm. so many conflicts were fought in China, around China, during World War II. Mm. Uh, it, it, that to call them a minor power is uh, disrespectful, given how many people died in the fighting. Um, and truly, mm. it was uh, trying to expel the uh, invaders, the Japanese, who were, mm. uh, you know, trying to uh, make a land grab. Yeah, and look, I think it doesn't... So it's, it's really interesting going back to materials from the, the era itself and looking at how the conflict in China was actually represented, because... Uh, whilst now they're sort of treated as a, a minor, if even a player at all, in World War Two, at the time uh, China was uh, regarded as an active player. You know, you can see this from like even the the first to fight posters. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've seen the propaganda stuff oh, yeah. that was all through. You know, the U.S. propaganda posters. Um, uh, that was promoting, um, you know, uh, donations and so forth to the Chinese cause because, of course, you know, they wanted China to continue to fight Japan so that they, nobody else had to fight Japan. And that was the, the big driver. Um, but there was acknowledgement that China was the first combatant in the war uh, with Japan. Uh, China was the first to sign the United Nations Declaration um, uh, as, you know, the the acknowledged at the time as the first um, first of the allies that was involved in World War II. Um, so, you know, if you actually look at the, the time period itself, China was absolutely regarded as, as one of the key allies. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but there, there's certainly a, a lot of back and forth, um, even at the time, about how China should be regarded and, you know, what the Allies wanted to to do with their relationship with China, even at the time. But um, what is absolutely clear is that they were 
a major participant in the war um, or in, in the conflicts that were happening at that time. And that's also represented in the just astronomical death toll um, amongst Chinese people at the time, which is second only to um, to, to uh, the uh, death toll amongst the people of the US SAR. So, um, yeah, look, calling them a minor power, I, I don't, whether or not it's a question of respect, it just strikes me as inaccurate. Yeah. Um, you know, they were one of the big four allies. They were. Um, and it's a real shame that they're, you know, we don't, see that representation um, more broadly. Um, uh, so I guess what we're hoping to do today is to look at filling some of those gaps. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, seeing what we can do to bring the conflict in China forward a bit uh, and um, get it uh, better repre uh, represented in bolt action. Exactly. Well, let, I'm glad you brought that back to bolt action. Let's let's talk specifically about bolt action, because one of the things mm -hmm. that I hear from time to time uh, and you see occasionally online are people saying, um, oh, there's a, there's an army list for bolt action uh, mm -hmm. in bolt action for the Chinese, which, of course, can be found mm -hmm. in the Empires in Flames, uh, mm -hmm. Pacific in the Far East book. Now, a lot of people then ask, oh, but Warlord doesn't make models for that. At least they mm. said that up until recently. And then mm. um, that led to the, oh, it doesn't really exist. And people sort of throw it over their shoulder. Of course, there are lots of other game companies that make lots of models. Um, but And there, there is... A, uh, there are quite a few ranges of Chinese models out there. I mean, we've seen Copplestones models, mm -hmm. although those are sort of earlier. Those are more generic. Um, Warlord era. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one of the big things is with such a, a large nation, with so many people, um, to sort of shrink down that many people into one relatively slim, by comparison to other nation books, uh, army list, does kind of generalize a lot of the diversity that you would see mm. in a Chinese army. So uh, I think they actually, in, in creating this army list, they did a brilliant thing of setting up almost a three-strand approach mm. to the list. You have one list of units, but then you have three different ways to take it. You can take communist, you can take nationalist, you can take... Um, warlord uh and mm. so by taking those you get access to different units and that really does differentiate the way that you play your army and each one has its own character um but before we get into the list per se when you're trying to represent those on the tabletop it can sometimes be difficult to figure out mm. which models to use for which army because there are so many different ways of looking at it, and um, who wore what uniform where. Different warlords had access to different gear. Um, even the nationalists over time, even though they were the national army of China at the time, which later the leadership for that, of course, fled to Taiwan, um, and are not what we consider you know, communist Chinese today. And then we have the communists that weren't even what we would consider the communist Chinese today. They were a more of a minor... I don't want to say power because that, of course, they were sort mm. of an up and coming political movement within China at the time, I mm. think is a better way of saying that under who would a Mao who eventually became, you know, Mao. Uh, but how do we represent that on the tabletop? So mm. I've mentioned Copplestone again. Um, that might be one way if you're looking at doing warlord troops. 
Uh, of course, we also have the brigade models, brigade games. Um, and my most, my first Chinese army was cobblestone. Uh, my second army is the one that I currently use uh, is from the brigade line, and it's very much. Uh, and I was very happy about those models because they very much represent the forces for 1937, 1938-ish uh, Battle of Shanghai and related conflicts, um, wow. which was called the Stalingrad of the East. So it, it, it was a major battle, lots of forces fighting there. Uh, and I have a Japanese and a Chinese army that match that conflict so I can play mm-hmm. historical games. Uh, but th- again, very specific to that particular part of the war mm-hmm. and very specific to um, the forces that fought in that particular place mm-hmm. and the gear that was used then. It, it's not, and, and specifically to, to nationalist troops. I guess my big question, John, um, a lot of people have been asking recently, Warlords put out a, a wonderful range of Chinese models for bolt action Korea. Now, mm-hmm. yes, we've seen some people using those in forces and they look great. Do those work if you're looking sort of, I guess, for any of the forces that we would see represented on a bolt-action tabletop, uh, if you want to play Chinese in World War II? So, unfortunately, I think the answer is, generally speaking, no. So they're not really historically appropriate for um, for Chinese forces during the Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, uniforms are off. The the kit is is more Soviet than it is um, German, I mm. guess. Uh, it, it's there are things you can do with it. Um, certainly, I think there are aspects actually of the North Korean forces that are actually closer to um, Chinese in World War Two that you could you could certainly make use of. But they're still not quite there. You know. Again, I'm not going to hold it against anybody who wants to use them um, exactly in, in general bolt action because you know again that that range well it hasn't created that range for for um, China in World War Two so um, fair enough use the models you can get um, not going to criticize anyone for doing that no. however well hold however, on and again really quick if if you have an army of that I know that I've mm. built armies like when I built my cobblestone mm. army. Uh, and I used it as nationalists. A lot of people then looked at it and said, oh, those aren't the right hats or this mm. isn't necessarily the right rifle that those troops used. Yeah. Um, and I used them and I had a great time with them, using them for uh, Chinese. And that isn't why I sold them. I, I thought they were great. I, I was getting out of bolt action for a little while. So I got and I had 11 armies. Mm. So I was getting rid of some of them. Um, and I regretted that one, which is why I now have mm. the brigade Chinese. But I had a brilliant time. And mm. most of the time when I used that for, you know, no one ever called me up on it in an actual game of, oh, you're, you don't have the right number of buttons on your top. Mm. It, it was, and I absolutely get that. And that's not what we're trying to do today. But it, you know, no, when you play the layman, no one really knows what the Chinese uniform looked like from one conflict to another in World War II. But if you want to go down that rabbit hole, mm. that's what we're talking about today. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, if we go back two years, I think it was that we recorded a podcast on, on cast dice around, you know, my experience in trying to build a Chinese army mm-hmm. um, and, and my disappointment around the ranges that were available at that time and how I got around that. You know, I very much looked at what was important to me, what aspects of, of the uniforms and so forth exactly. I could represent, how I would 
trying to create something that was as representative as I could uh, at that time. Um, but, uh, you know, again, still with its imperfections, um, still had a lot of uh, aspects of that that, that weren't really uh, era accurate. So um, I'm really excited today um, to be able to, and apologies for the plug here, but really excited to be able to announce uh, that Eureka Miniatures uh, is going to be releasing a range of World War II Chinese soldiers in the very near future. Nice. Um, so this is, I believe this is the first time this has been publicly announced. Um, and full disclosure, um, I brought this idea to Eureka uh, and um, have been working on the, the accompanying material and we'll be working with them on the, the, um, the, the uniforms and so forth um, uh, and, and what the, the soldiers should look like and how they should be armed and, and that sort of thing. So this is not something, I, you know, I'm not talking about something entirely external here. Uh, I am involved in the project, although Eureka is going to be, you know, providing the, the um, sculpts and everything. Um, so uh, it is a crowdfunding campaign. Um, I believe it should be announced on the Eureka website shortly. Uh, and it's going to be for a range of miniatures that's uh, very specific to uh, Second Sino-Japanese War or, or China in World War II uh, and should be appropriate really for use more or less throughout the entirety of that conflict uh, and will be as era appropriate as we can make it. So let's talk a little bit about that because, um, as I mentioned, my brigade models, uh, which mm. I love, are uh, work for 1937. Uh, what makes the upcoming Eureka range more generally accurate for a longer time period? What what sort of visual cues are we yeah. looking at? So you you alluded to this before um, that you know the, the war in China was long yes. um, and. It's China's a big place with a lot of different diverse forces that were equipped. It also, look, massive supply line issues, a lot of local production happening. There's a huge variation uh, across the country throughout the conflict in what people wore, what they were kitted with, all that sort of thing. Uh, and whilst it would be wonderful for us to be able to create, uh, you know, the full scope of everything mm -hmm. that was used, um, you know, at some point you have to, to drill down and say, okay, well, what's what's most practical here? Um, and what we're focusing on is the standard nationalist um, uniform. Mm -hmm. And when I say nationalist uniform, remembering that under the Second United Front, the warlord armies and the uh, communist armies were all under the nationalists. So the nationalist uniform was... Theoretically, uh, the uniform for all of those forces. Uh, it was also used um, with some variation uh, by collaborationist for forces. Mm -hmm. In some cases, it was actually an identical uniform used by collaborationist forces. And it was even in use uh, in Burma, specifically from uh, troops that were entering from China. Less so from the troops that were coming in from India, but uh, from troops that were um, deployed from China, they still had these uniforms. So, um, so we're going to be going with a uniform and, and kit that is 
the most used across China throughout the conflict. Um, Gear-wise, again, uh, look, huge variety of stuff, but there were some consistent themes, such as the the Chiang Kai-shek rifle was the mm-hmm. most common. Um, you know, the... Uh, well, well, hold on, which is, uh, for those unfamiliar and for those looking to convert, if you, for example, uh, want to use plastics, war- warlord plastics, and then convert things like I know you did with your early Chinese, mm-hmm. um, that is very similar to a German rifle, right? Yeah, it's a it's a Chinese copy of a German rifle. That's right. Um, so uh, it's uh, I'm going to get this wrong if I say it. So I'm not actually going to say it's a Mauser something. Yes, um, it's a Mauser. Yeah, <laughs> I believe. But um, yeah, so in, in China, of course, it's known as the Chiang Kai-shek rifle. Um, there is uh, the um, LMG um, is the uh, the Czech ZB uh, VZ26. Mm-hmm. Um, which again uh, was the most used LMG throughout the war um, for for the the uh, the bigger machine gun. You know, going with the German style Maxim, which again, like yes, there were others used, but this was the most common exactly. um, mortar. We're looking at the eighty two, uh, the Chinese Type twenty eighty two millimeter mortar, which again wasn't the only mortar used, but was the most common. Exactly. So this is how we're approaching it: is saying, okay, what's what would not be out of place in any of these theatres? Yeah, exactly. so rather than specialising and saying, all right, we're going to create this force just for this one little engagement that's really specific and clearly, you know, suited to that, we're saying, okay, what, what if you see this in any different conflict in China, what would not be out of place? And that's what we're trying to create. Um, so with the broadest application. And then... Um, you know, that also creates a lot of opportunities for either, um, you know, additional options from Eureka, such as um, adding the German helmets, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or even conversion opportunities, you know, if people want to add Brody helmets, for example, which are also quite common or, yes. um, you know, what what have you, that it won't take very much work to... Um, convert them to be specific to individual conflicts within the broader war. And if you wanted to add, exactly, if you wanted to represent XY forces in Burma, you could wa- you could um, use at, just sub in some British gear on top of those existing models. Um, you know, I guess not substituting, but convert in, like change the heads out for British helmets. You would yeah. Be, I, I understand that you're getting more into British gear, um, yeah. But even then, you could possibly pull that? Maybe not. Yeah, Maybe look, I'm uh, going so, a bridge too so, far. Yeah, look, Burma is, uh, I think, so once you get towards the end of the war and you've got the conflict in Burma really, you know, really kicking off, um, towards the last couple of years of the war, we saw a lot of Chinese soldiers actually being kitted fully in um, British or US or a combination of that gear. And that's probably the... Um, the biggest case that we're not really covering here, and I'm hoping we will in the future, but for the time being, um, that's that's probably the most different. Uh, having said that, certainly uh, there were still um, forces that were kitted out by with the, the standard Chinese gear. Uh, as I said, particularly um, the Chinese Expeditionary Force mm-hmm. um, and uh, Y Force. Um, made a lot of use of, of Chinese 
uniforms and gear in Burma. So it's absolutely appropriate for that theatre. Um, but um, yeah, if you wanted to go more specific to the 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 British equipped or the US equipped troops, um, I think there's there's um, some other options you might uh, otherwise you might approach that. Well, this this sounds exciting because as I mentioned earlier, there there. Are- when you play Chinese on the tabletop, people are often unfamiliar as an experienced uh, Chinese mm-hmm. player. I mean, bolt action is bolt action. A rifle squad's a rifle squad. An LMG's an LMG. You can mm-hmm. usually spot those things on the tabletop if you are, you know, a regular bolt action player. A lot of things don't necessarily jump out at you. But when you start throwing things like big sword squads in, um, mm-hmm. people start saying, wait, wh- what is that? How does that work? <laughs> what does this do? Um, so if you, it sounds like the Eureka range is, is pretty good for that because it is, it's a more general approach to Chinese forces that could be used more universally across the war. If you Mm -hmm. just want to make a Chinese army and you don't want to specifically theme it to a particular conflict. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and that's absolutely what we're, um, what we're aiming for, uh, with this. It's also, you know, again, we're trying for historical accuracy as much mm-hmm. as possible here, um, and so there's actually going to be elements of it that aren't currently represented in the the bolt action rule set either. But um, I am fully intending to, um, you know, put out some, uh, I guess, community made um, alternatives that will allow you to run um, some things that were historically in Chinese forces, but don't appear in the bolt action rule book. The biggest of that being the um, Chinese knee mortars, um, which uh, they did use significantly, but don't appear at all in the uh, the right. bolt action rules. Right. Well, let, let's pivot a little bit. Well, before we pivot, mm. I think it should be mentioned that these models are also going to be sculpted by Costas, who, uh, if you're familiar with Eureka's work, um, most recently did the uh, brilliant Eureka Japanese model range. Mm. So I believe he also did the Australians previously and the Soviets. He's done a lot of great stuff for Eureka. Mm. If you have not checked his... And Eureka's put out a lot of World War II stuff in recent yeah. years that we didn't talk about in the early podcast because they had done sort of pulp Germans previously and some pulp Americans and a few mm. other bits and pieces uh, but now they really have dug into, you know, bolt action scale World War II, and they have some really exciting product ranges. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, Costa's doing the um, the sculpting. Um, if you go to the Eureka Miniatures website and check out their Imperial Japanese range, you, you'll get a really good sense of the quality uh, that that we're looking at here. Some really amazing stuff he's yeah. he's done. Uh, and look, whilst this probably by the time this this podcast goes out the official announcement will not have happened for this campaign uh nick from eureka has asked me to pass on to the audience that if anybody wants to reach out to him directly um for further information they're welcome to do so so you know if you just go to the contact details on the website um shoot him an email uh and he can provide further information but hopefully that stuff should be public very shortly um about uh yeah how to uh how to be a part of the campaign and and um hopefully how to get uh, get your hands on some um sweet some sweet chinese models yeah chinese models in the the very near future nice now let's pivot a little bit back mm. to the book 
Now, um, we are going to talk a little bit about missions and how to represent, yeah. uh, you know, conflicts in China during World War II. Uh, and while we have a lot of great things to say about, you know, Empire and Flames in general, it is literally one of my favorite bolt action books. Uh, and I, I, it is off my shelf all the time. I've actually worn mm -hmm. out a copy and I'm on my <laughs> second one. Uh, both because I'm a Japanese Chinese player and I have Marine Raiders. Like there's just a lot in there that I love. Mm. Um, it, it is a book of a time. It came out in first edition bolt action. It is from mm. 2015 and the Chinese army list in that book actually predates it several, actually by a, by a significant amount of time. Um, mm. I happened to see a copy of that Chinese army list well before the book came out. Um, mm. And that list did not change much since mm. in, in its publishing. So I guess what I'm saying is it's easy for us to look at the missions and to look at some of the way the forces are put together in that book and to say, oh, we could be a little more historically accurate with that. But again, mm. um, we're not being critical of Warlord because, A, trying to uh, distill an entire nation and an entire conflict as broad as the one that was in China uh, into one army list is incredibly difficult. In, in fact, I would say it's almost impossible, and what they've done is mm. fantastic. Um, but also, a lot of the information that has come out in recent years, and I mean since Empire and Flames have come out, are where we're drawing information from to say, hey, here's something we might suggest to make something a little more accurate. Would you agree, John? Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's, um, again, as I said earlier, um, it was Empires in Flames that, that brought me into bolt action. It was the fact that there was a Chinese rule set in that that brought me into bolt action. Um, I love it. Yeah, it it's, it's great. Um, it, despite the fact I've said, you know, I'd like to add some things to the selectors and, or even maybe take some things out. Um, that's not to say that it's not a great book. I, I, I you know, really rate it, you know, def definitely worth having. Um, but as you say, uh, you know, it is it is showing its age and there has been a lot of information that's become available in English since then mm -hmm. uh, that allows us to, um, you know, bring further information to the tabletop, that to, to create forces in a more historically accurate way, um, use that new information in interesting ways. Um, and... Uh, you know that's that's true both of the four selectors and of uh, the scenarios um, present in the uh, in the book. So, um, and I think you know we've talked about the selectors before, and and you know again something I'd like to talk about again in the future. Um, but uh, today I think we're really looking at talking scenarios yeah. uh, for for playing uh, Chinese in World War Two. Now, if we're talking scenarios that are currently available specifically for the conflicts in China, mm. there are literally two scenarios in yep. Empires and Flames. Yep. Uh, and 50% of those are great. Um, <laughs> sh shall, shall we talk about the two that are there? Uh, or actually, yeah. before we get there, let, let's back step out. So before mm. we get into historical uh, scenarios and missions, uh, I guess there's an interesting... There's an interesting divide in the bolt action community uh, mm. that seems to occur. Now, of course, I'm not speaking about everyone, but I'm talking in generalities. There do tend to be a lot of people that 
um, look at books, the campaign books, uh, the theater selector books, uh, and say, oh, uh, I, I'm looking for new units, and that's it. Or I'm looking for new mm. selectors, and that's it. And they yeah. and they often look past missions because they're looking for the the more balanced air quotes balanced, um, you know, red versus blue on a tabletop that's mm. fair for both players, and where you end up having you know equal chance of playing and winning a game versus where sometimes you see more historically based scenarios uh, in a lot of these books that more closely represent what happened in the actual conflict because it's mm-hmm. a rare day in a lot of these conflicts that equal size uh, forces mm-hmm. um, you know lined up against one another equally to punch each other on the chin or grab objectives mm-hmm. there there's often a disparity in in power and forces that that is why we're talking about that conflict in the first place now I think that there's absolutely time and a place for both in bolt action and if you've only played historical uh, conflicts. I think, you know, running some of the more, you know, maybe bolt action alliance mission pack missions, those mm-hmm. might be worth giving a go. Uh, cause they're, they're fun and you're going to get a good game doing that versus, uh, if you've only ever played quote unquote, you know, balanced fair missions and you mm-hmm. want to, but even that makes it sound like historical missions aren't fun or aren't balanced or aren't mm-hmm. fair. They are, you just need to, maybe think about it a little harder or look at it a little differently. I think there's a lot of fun that can be had there. Uh, and I'd really invite people if they, ha- if they only play one style and they mm. often poo poo the other one, which happens. I know I've been that guy. I highly recommend you give it a go because playing some historical missions can really, um, a stretch you as a player because you know you're challenging mm-hmm. yourself in new and exciting ways. But also, B, it it really opens up creativity, especially if you're sitting there calling out, "I want something different in the game." Uh, and there are a lot of people saying, "Oh, I want new units. I want new army lists. Mm-hmm. I want new selectors." Uh, well, there are books of material that players are often overlooking. So maybe give it a look. Mm-hmm. Anyway, John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So, you know, there, there's there's those two different coexisting types of scenarios. You, you're really sort of broad generalist ones that you can play with any forces. Um, and, you know, I know you've, you've um, been a part of creation of, of some of the some some of those scenarios as well. You know, some great stuff. Um, can you hawk down? Is, is that one of yours? It is. Can you hawk down? Yeah. Nuts. You know, so um, I really yeah. like Kitty Hawk Down. That's a really fun scenario to mm-hmm. play. Again, doesn't require you to play specifically any force. You know, works really well across the board. Um, plus, of course, all the 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 stuff in the the bolt action rulebook and and whatnot. Exactly. And in Empires in Flames, it actually does tell you which of the generic um, uh, scenarios make for a good fit with China in World War Two. Yeah, know, which again, great. Um, but I think it also comes down to what you're playing bolt action for, or what you're playing your tabletop games for, or what your intention is. And, and, um, you know, we touched a bit on this on, in, the, in our introductory, um, gap episode, but, uh, the, I think at this point for me, I really like narrative games i like games that tell a story um i like i'm less interested in winning and losing 
and more interested in the the story that the game itself tells. And I think historical scenarios or those unusual little you know weird scenarios are, are really great for that purpose. Um, again, it's not what I would recommend for a tournament. You know <laughs> exactly. Um, it's not appropriate for that because. Um, you know, people are going to go into it with unbalanced forces or unbalanced um, uh, deployment or whatever, and someone's going to come out saying, well, it wasn't fair that I lost because of X, Y, and Z. But as a story, as something interesting to play out, it can be really fun, especially if you're playing with a friend who's who's got the same idea uh, or, or going into it with the same mindset. And so what I think we're going to focus on for the rest of this conversation really is that that approach to playing like okay here's a historically inspired scenario um we're going to to play it out uh, as best we can and have fun with the story and, and where it goes now i do want to catch you there and i think the way you've said um you know, more general generalist missions, I think, is a better way of saying that than what I was saying fair and balanced earlier. Um, but I believe that you can use those, of course. And as you said in mm. Empire Flames, they do very clearly say which missions you should use for certain conflicts. Um, so you can, you know, play historically accurate or thematic or narrative games mm. using generalist scenarios. Absolutely, especially if you're playing using, uh, you know, matching forces on table that matches. I mean, we've all played the game uh, of, you know, nationalist Chinese versus uh, Norwegians uh, in, <laughs> uh, you know, in the middle of a desert. Uh, by the way, uh -huh. thank you, Akhtar, for that game. It was lovely. I was playing my Chinese. Uh, yes. But it's even better when you are, for example, playing... Battle of the Bulge Germans versus Battle of the Bulge Americans on, you know, an Ardain board, all of a sudden, that's hot. Like, that that makes World War II come to life. Now, I'm not saying you have to play that every time. Clearly, I play more often than not uh, not themed. It's hard to find mm. people who have the exact opposite force of you, quote unquote, yeah. uh, and the right terrain and the right setting. I get it. However, when those opportunities happen, it's magical. Uh, but yeah, let, let's let's dig in a little bit there. Um, so let's talk about the missions in Empire and Flames because yeah. there's the battle for Marco Polo Bridge, which I believe is the first one. That's right, yeah. So so there's two in there. There's Marco Polo Bridge and Battle of Shanghai, yeah. um, I, I believe it's listed as or something to that effect. Um, so Marco Polo Bridge, I think, is a really great example of taking historical inspiration and making a really interesting little scenario out of it. Um, and... Before we get too deep into this, you know, I, I, something that um, I, I feel like gets thrown around a bit when talking about the war in China and the reason there aren't more um, scenarios around it and so forth is is uh, this view that there were no really major or interesting conflicts that happened or battles yes. that happened. And, and look, that's just, I mean, it's simply untrue. It, it's... Um, that's not a criticism of anyone. It's simply just a lack of information, I think, um, exactly. about what happened. Because as with every other aspect of uh, World War II or, or that era of conflict, you know, there was a great variety of different um, conflicts, different battles, um, and, uh, you know, some some 
really specific stuff that happened. One of the things that people are aware of is, of course, the Marco Polo Bridge incident, which is really regarded as having kicked off the whole Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, and if we regard the Second Sino-Japanese War as part of World War II, it would also be the first conflict in World War II. Um, so it's you know, out of everything that happened in China throughout that period, it's certainly one of the most well-known things. And it was this two very small forces, which again, easy to represent with bolt action, mm -hmm. uh, that fought across a giant bridge, or a really big bridge that um, you can immediately picture how this how you fight this, right? Like you've got a big old bridge in the middle, you've got an impassable river going through it, you've got the Chinese who are guarding the bridge, you've got the Japanese who are coming in, uh, trying to cross the bridge, um, and it's a really clear attacker-defender scenario. And I think that the Empires in Flames does a really good job of uh, just noting down how you would fight that, what the wind conditions are, all that sort of stuff. Great job. Perfect. Exactly what I want from a historically inspired scenario. And it's really cool, right? Because not the Japanese forces can only take light vehicles. There has to be mm -hmm. armor value. I mean, of course you're using the selectors, but you can't yep. take um, vehicles with damage of eight or higher. So of course we're talking armored cars or tankettes is the yeah. only thing the Japanese can take. And while you might say, ooh, that's, that's, that's really limiting, the Chinese can't take vehicles at all. Yeah. Um, and let's be honest, uh, especially early in the war, 1937, uh, some Chinese anti-tank assets are very sparse and thin on the ground. Mm. So to have uh, to have the way uh, it feels very defender attacker just by the way the armies are put together, and then yeah. you have the missions. So again, I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, I, and that's what I want out of a historically inspired scenario. Um, the this counterpoint to this is, of course, the, the other scenario, the Battle of Shanghai, uh, which is, is pretty disappointing by comparison. And I think there's a couple of couple of key reasons for this. So that the scenario itself is, uh, I believe it's a bunker assault. So, so it's, it's trench warfare, attack. technically. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's set inside Shanghai proper uh, amongst rubble of buildings and so mm -hmm. forth a destroyed city i think is the sort of description it is um and then you've got a Jap japanese bunker uh somewhere in the center of the board and chinese attackers um trying to overrun it and the the fluff describes the initial chinese assault on japanese positions in shanghai um now there's immediately a couple of problems with this one is, if we're talking about the initial Chinese assault, then the battle is not, then the, the, the city is not yet rubble. Exactly. Um, it's not yet destroyed. You know, it, it's one or the other. That battle lasted for three months. It's a, it's a, it was a huge battle. It was long and grueling and, and almost all but wiped out the trained Chinese forces um, and, and, and changed the face of the war from that point onwards. Um, and it's, you know, trying to represent that entire three-month thing in just this one little action is, is going to be really difficult. Um, on top of that, you know, having the Chinese trying to overrun a Japanese bunker, which 
I believe that, that it's trying to represent the Chinese assault on the Japanese embassy, I think. Yeah. Um, is what they're going for. You know, again, like there's definitely a, a something there, but I would have really preferred that they went deep onto saying like, okay, this is going to represent the assault on the embassy and this is how it's going to, we're going to represent it. Not this is the Battle of Shanghai because that's not the Battle of Shanghai. The Battle of Shanghai, you know, shortly after that, the, um, you know, after initial Chinese wave assaults and so forth, the Japanese started to push back. That's when they did their creeping artillery bombing and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, just turned Shanghai into absolute rubble and, you know, pushed back the Chinese and decimated those forces or worse than decimated, you know, um, completely, almost completely destroyed those forces, uh, forcing the Chinese out of Shanghai. Um, You know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, And we're going to talk about a a bit later, a couple of different options on, on looking at the battle of Shanghai and and specific events. Um, But I think, if you want to go historical inspiration, you have to be looking at it on a smaller scale than that scenario tries to do. Yeah. Well, uh, I think also, I mean, what they're trying, I mean, trying to distill any four month battle between, you know, the, the native Chinese, we're talking what 50,000 ish troops um, versus I've read between 300 and 500,000 Japanese troops with full, you know, armor, aircraft, et cetera, et cetera, support, artillery, support attacking the city um, and it going back and forth between mm. these two forces um, for, what, four or five months? If, mm. you, if you look at that, trying to distill it down to one bunker assault, yeah. you know, that I, I, I get where they're going. And I think you can play that mission and have a good time doing it. Yeah. But I think that... I mean, if you start digging into maybe some of the Fortress Budapest missions, some of the the urban fighting there, if you dig into some of the the missions from, oh, I don't know, uh, the Stalingrad book, I mean, there's the Fall of the Fourth Reich, or sorry, Third Reich, um, from um, the names of the books are escaping me now. But if you dig into some of those missions, I think those work equally well if you adapt the forces out Mm. to more match using the selectors that you find in this book. Yeah, yeah. But again, very generally. What we're going to talk about later is a lot more specific. That's right, yeah. So um, I think that works as a a generic scenario, but I think as a Battle of Shanghai scenario, it's just disappointing um, at the end of the day in the way that the Marco Polo Bridge scenario is not. Yeah, it's so good. So on that note, um, so I've been throwing around some ideas and we've discussed some ideas as well. And, and, um, you know, talked with, with some of the other members of gap, uh, about, um, some other possible scenario ideas for, um, bolt action in China, uh, and, you know, how one might put together some more scenarios like the Marco Polo bridge scenario mm-hmm. uh, to play out some really specific events uh, and and create some really interesting narrative campaigns. Now, before folks start looking for this uh, on the Bolt Action Alliance Facebook page uh, or anything like that, these are not published. They are not out yet. We're talking mm. about our, our goal today is to talk about, I guess, the, the creation, how you would go about maybe using mm. uh, history as a guide to help create missions. We're still in the playtesting phase, uh, and, you know, we do playtest these things. 
and we want to play them and make sure they're fun and that you know people who engage with them have a good time. And so John and I have been talking about getting together to play test these um, for a year. And then there's COVID <laughs> that hits you in the face yeah. every so often with a lockdown. So we're hoping to actually sit down and play some of these out soon. Might even be in a couple of weeks, right, John? That's that's the hope. That's the dream. <laughs> I've literally just pulled out my Chinese uh, army really. to make sure I'm ready for that. So I'm touching it up and getting everything ready. Look for if you want to see uh, Chinese content, ladies and gentlemen, there will be pictures of my army uh, up on the Facebook page. Hopefully by the time this goes to air. Uh, but uh, John, let's talk about how do we use history uh, and specifically how are you using some of the research? What research are you using and how are you using that to guide um mission creation that mm. works for this conflict yeah so um as we talked about before there's some really great recent materials that's been, been released about the second sign of japanese war um in in the english language so there's a huge amount of chinese scholarship uh on the era of course but there's not that much or that historically there hasn't been that much available in english it's pretty limited um again could go on on for forever about this but there's you know china has been to some degree or the contemporary china has been to some degree rehabilitating uh their participation in world war ii um as part of nation building exercise mm -hmm. um it, it was a bit controversial historically because of course it was mostly fought by the nationalists um and previous nation building was a great deal about you know communists versus nationalists yes. and so nationalists are the bad guys so you know it's it's difficult to put up the conflicts that they were specifically involved in or that they fought as being um chinese victories or or uh something for china to be proud of so but as we get further away from that era china has been going back and saying okay look you know, these are Chinese victories. This is, uh, so Rana Mitta has got a, a recent book he's released called China's Good War, I think it is, um, wherein he talks about how China is uh, rehabilitating World War II and, and creating a narrative in a similar way to, you know, the way that European nations and, and the US and Australia and so forth have done in saying, look, you know, this was our good fight. You know, this was us coming together and, and you know, our, our moment of great heroism. Mm -hmm. um, and so China's been doing that. And as part of that, there's been a lot more external scholarship around um, China's participation in World War II. And a lot of uh, English language texts have been become available, which is excellent. So uh, for our purposes, certainly anyway. Exactly. Um, so in researching this stuff and you know i'm an enthusiast i'm not a um historian or anything like that uh, um, my partner speaks chinese so i've got some access to chinese materials but i myself don't um so i have to rely on other people's translations um my overall approach so there's been uh so a an author by the name of peter harmson has recently very recently released a couple of books so he's a i believe he's a correspondent or a journalist uh by training and he's re released these books which are really good really readable overviews of the conflict or the the the, the full i believe it's intended to be a trilogy he's so far released two of them in the the trilogy is called war in the far east 
um, and it's the first one is storm clouds over the Pacific, and the second one is Japan runs wild. Yeah, um, and I believe there's a third book planned, um, and that gives a really good overview and and sort of briefly touches on various aspects of the conflict. So I'm reading through those and then pulling out specific events and going, oh, okay, there's something interesting here. There's something that would work on the tabletop here and then doing a deep dive on that. So, um, you know, there are other texts that are more specific. Again, Peter Harmson's actually released um, two books that are one that's about um, the Battle of Shanghai. So a, a, an entire book that's just about the Battle of Shanghai and another one that's um, about the Battle of Nanjing. Um, and there's there's other authors who have um, you know written much more specifically about certain events, and there's a lot of information online about them as well. So initially, just looking for a general idea, and then doing a bit of a deep dive on it to try and really pull out, okay, what does that look like? How would one represent it? What are the key features of it? Why is it interesting to play on the tabletop? Well, let's then dig into exactly how we're going to use that information to create missions uh, or playable scenarios on the tabletop. How do we bring that that information to life, so to speak? Um, John, what what sings out to you? I know that there's a lot. I mean, we've talked at length about mm. how the, there's a lot to pull from. Mm. What are some pivotal moments for you that you thought were very important to include uh, in, in a playable mission pack for bolt action players. Yeah. So, um, as you say, there's a, there's a huge amount to pull from. And I, I sort of looked at, you know, do I want to jump around through the war and look at different aspects, different forces at different times and different places and so forth. Um, what I've wound up doing is said, Oh, like, let's, let's keep it simple. Let's start from the start. Um, at the moment. So what we're talking about today focuses on, uh, mostly 1937. So right at the start of the war. Yep. Um, with a view to then um, building uh, the missions up in the future uh, across the years of the war. Um, so 37, of course, is uh, a lot of very important events happening. Although, mm -hmm. I must say, the first thing I think we're going to talk about is actually the year prior to that. So before even the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out, um, something that I think would be really amazing to play out on the tabletop is the, uh, the Xi'an incident. Yes. Um, so, and before I delve into this, apologies to any Chinese speakers out there. I know my pronunciation is terrible. Um, I'm going with westernizations of, of names and so forth as much as possible because my, my Chinese is really bad. So well, also, <laughs> also if, if you actually are using proper pronunciations, because we are used to the westernized versions, mm. it can actually be confusing that you might actually be talking about something that people would know as another name, um, only in that pronunciations are so different. Um, having spent a big chunk of time in Xi'an during uh, right after the Tiananmen lockdown in the 80s, my dad and I were teaching English there then. Um, wow. I being a very young teacher's assistant, I might add, I'm not that old guys. Um, <laughs> but when I would come back and try and have conversations with, uh, you know, f adults, cause you know, a lot of the 
kids that I was hanging out with didn't really want to talk about it. But when people asked me about it, I would talk about it. But they often didn't know what I was talking about, not, not because I was mispronouncing it, but because I'd spent, you know, five, six weeks there. I was saying the names of things using actually, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, sh- I, I shrug and shudder to say a more accurate way of saying mm-hmm. it um, locally, I should say. Um, much like the, the Japanese name for Japan is Nippon. And, mm-hmm. you know, if I was walking around talking about my time growing up in Nippon or Nihon, people wouldn't have any idea what I was talking about because mm-hmm. we call it Japan. So I, I think we can be a little bit, be a little forgiving of the pronunciations here, mm-hmm. guys. We're doing the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely, you're right. It's not because my Chinese is terrible. It's for the benefit of the audience that I'm doing this. Um, let's edit out everything previously and yes. go with that. Perfect. All right. Uh, so, um, yeah, so the Xi'an incident is uh, a really important event in the uh, the lead up to the Second uh, Sino-Japanese War. Um, so Chiang Kai-shek, um, of course, being the leader of the nationalists, mm-hmm. um, both in a political and, and military sense, uh, was really focused on eliminating communism in China, vehemently hated communism, um, famously quoted as saying, communism is a disease of the heart, the Japanese are but a disease of the skin. So he thought that the biggest threat in China was communism and was focusing a lot of the efforts of his forces in rooting out and eliminating communists. This didn't sit well with a lot of others who were quite concerned about Japanese encroachment into Chinese territory, you know, particularly the the invasion of Manchuria earlier in that um, in that decade, Mm -hmm. um, which China had not fought against, Um, you know, mostly, I believe, because. China didn't really have a modern army that was was capable of repelling Japan in that in that conflict. So, mm-hmm. um, so all these efforts going towards rooting out communism, uh, Japan is taking chunks of China. Um, there are a lot of people who are very worried about this, um, and so a warlord who was under the command of uh, Chiang Kai-shek, but known as the Young Marshal. Mm-hmm. Um, took direct action here. A surprising action with a really surprising result, I've got to say. Yeah. Um, so he, he and, and, and another local general, um, they made a plan to... So Chiang Kai-shek was visiting uh, Xi'an, uh, and, and while he was in Xi'an, uh, the young general made this plan to kidnap him, basically, mm-hmm. uh, to arrest him, um, take him into custody, and demand that he make peace with the communists so that they can focus the fight on Japan. Um, and, you know, I'll get to the details of the actual, uh, what is going to be the scenario in a second, but it's just really interesting to, to know that the result of that action, so they did capture him, uh, they did detain him, he did agree to ally with the communists, and then also did ally with the communists and formed the Second United uh, Front um, which was, you know, there, there was a lot of problems with it. It's a very shaky alliance, but it persisted throughout the entirety of the Second Sino-Japanese War. So, um, 
it, it, it's amazing to me that that was the outcome of, of this action. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what happened. Um, and for the young marshal, he was uh, put under arrest, I think, for, oh, I want to say something like 50 years or something, a, a long time uh, post that action. Um, but he was successful uh, in, in what he set out to achieve. So the scenario itself here is the actual raid on um, Chiang Kai-shek's living quarters um, that was mounted by the young marshal's troops. Um, So they attacked, uh, so it was before dawn on December 12, 1936, uh, and it's a small group of soldiers. How small? I don't have exact numbers. So, um, but it is a small group of soldiers um, break into the residence, um, fight with the bodyguards who are present, so soldiers that are accompanying um, Chiang Kai-shek. Um, Chiang flees, um, goes over a back wall of residence, injures himself, hides in the mountains, and is later found. Um, and I think there's a great little scenario there in... Um, playing out the action and trying to capture Chiang Kai-shek, but most importantly, not kill him in the process. Exactly. Because uh, unlike the uh, the manhunt scenario that's in the, the Bolt Action rulebook, like if the young marshal's troops kill Chiang Kai-shek, there's a real risk that it can completely topple any sort of alliance that exists in China at that point in time and makes them extremely vulnerable to invasion by the, the, the Japanese. So at all costs, Chiang Kai-shek cannot die in this scenario um, from both sides' perspective. Um, everyone else, of course, is expendable, but Chiang Kai-shek himself um, must survive. This is almost uh, looking at history as like a time traveler. This is the this is the scenario where, you know, the leader of the, the forces prior to the actual conflict happens. This is sort of the opposite of hunting down and killing Hitler. Like you must yeah. you must protect uh, the yeah. head of the, you know, the, the Chinese general or leader b- uh, prior before the war starts. Yeah, I know technically Marco. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Manchuria. Yes, I get it. I'm just interesting side note. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, I, I've um, given some thought to how one might represent this on the tabletop, and depending on... So there are, you know, China has a huge number of... a huge output of uh, propaganda movies, and, and mm-hmm. the Xi'an incident has certainly been represented in, in those films. I mean, they're, you know, detail... The accuracy is pretty sketchy at best, but... I have reviewed some dramatizations of this and, you know, they, they seem to be, the combatants seem to be in the tens uh, of people, you know, so mm-hmm. again, good for bolt action. Uh, I was actually thinking this might be a really good opportunity to break out the firefight rules. Mm-hmm. Often uh, neglected and uh, sometimes mm. people forget that bolt action can be played on a very small scale. Yeah. So did, did you want to talk to the, the firefight rules a bit and what they are for, for anyone who, who's missed them? So they they are available. They've they're available through the Warlord website. There are um, they are for very small scale uh, missions. I have, again, set up a few games to play firefight. But unfortunately, COVID lockdowns have literally canceled all of them. Uh, they revolve around, I believe, two to three hundred point lists. 
Um, and there are uh, little additions about which, what, what national rules you can use, about what forces mm-hmm. you can use. Uh, again, it is very small scale conflicts. Um, we're talking very mm-hmm. small, but you, it does really allow you to play bolt action in a new and different way. Um, and to be able to play out, as you say, a conflict with tens of people, um, you know, if you literally have 20 odd models on each side, whereas that might be somewhat awkward in a regular bolt action scenario where you, you, you know, general, that would mean what you have three, six man squads and a, and a lieutenant and maybe a guy mm-hmm. with him that, that would be, you know, somewhat strange on a bolt action tabletop. I mean, not so much if your opponent was having something similar, but the firefight rules really does open it up and allow you to play, um, more freely at a smaller point mm-hmm. value. That's right. And and so, of course, with, with Firefight, you've got a dice per soldier or weapons team, I right. believe it is, yes. um, if I recall correctly. So, you know, really small numbers of combatants, uh, re- you know, each activation, very small number of people. Um, so also, you know, the thinking about how um, Chiang Kai-shek might be represented. So... Um, so he's an interesting one, of course. You know, he he is he is the generalissimo. You know, he is in charge of the the nationalists. Mm-hmm. Um, hugely influential. Uh, not going to be much of a combatant, but certainly insofar as command goes, like he's going to have a huge influence on on the people around him. So, uh, and this is something we really need to play test and see how it works yeah, out. But exactly. Um, playing him as a major under the bolt action rules so that he can have, he can activate multiple soldiers, soldiers simultaneously so that he can boost their, um, uh, their, their command values and so forth, or, or, you know, their leadership values, um, I think would be very interesting on the flip side, giving him no weapons. And so no ability to fight himself so that if he's engaged in combat, he's simply taken, um, is a way to sort of mediate some of that so that, you know, not accidentally killing him or anything like that. Agreed. But as long as he's still under the control of uh, the defender, um, that he is playing as essentially as a major uh, and, and able to order around troops uh, effectively or order soldiers whilst he makes his escape. Uh, and you've got that push-pull of, do I keep him close to people so he can you know, activate them, or do I need to get him out, get him away exactly. uh, from everyone else to to try and get him to safety? Um, by and large, you know, we're, I, I think we're looking at something that's very much like the manhunt scenario, again, with the addition that you're not going to be shooting Chiang Kai-shek, because mm-hmm. um, everybody loses if you do that. Um, or, in fact, I might even go so far as to say that the defender loses if they kill <laughs> Chiang Kai-shek just to to totally disincentivize, sorry, not defender, sorry, the attacker loses uh, if they kill Chiang Kai-shek to just totally disincentivize that. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, with, with, with a few tweaks to, to make it really specific to, um, to that particular engagement. Definitely. And of course, we would need, I mean, you would need some Chinese terrain for this because it, this scenario does play around uh, like a Chinese villa. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So um, I've actually I had my partner pull up some pictures of the actual site, which is now a tourist site. Um, it's an old imperial 
villa in fact so it's i believe i reckon it's tongue dynasty i believe mm -hmm. um villa i believe it was a uh a sort of home and or bathhouse for imperial concubines or something to that effect like it's this really interesting place um of which there are photos available um I mean, of what it looks like now, but, yeah. you know, gives you a sense of, of what it would look like. So, um, yeah, so you're going to have your um, sort of Tang Dynasty style buildings uh, there surrounded by walls with hills and, and forests out the back, uh, essentially. Um, so, yeah, I think from a terrain perspective, uh, it's quite easy to picture how you might go about representing this on the tabletop. Nice. Well, let's let's pivot to something slightly larger because the Xi'an yeah. incident, while important for the, the the conflict in China as a whole, obviously because mm. it then allows the the nationalists and the the communists to work together during World War II. Let's talk Lei Fang. Sorry, Lang Fang incident. Lang Fang, yeah. So, so this is really interesting. So, of course, Marco Polo Bridge incident is already covered in the uh, in Empires and Flames, right? Uh, and and that's you know when we talk about precipitating events, you know, things that, that really kick off the war. That's that's the go-to. You know, everything starts at, at Marco Polo Bridge. Something that certainly in China I think is quite well known but certainly less talked about in, in English language media is, is the Lungfeng incident, which happened shortly after um, the uh, the Marco Polo Bridge incident uh, in, in 1937. So... The Marco, Marco Polo Bridge incident did not initiate, there was no declaration of war or anything around that, you know, but it really did ramp up the conflict. Yeah. So prior to the Marco Polo Bridge incident, you know, you do have Japanese occupation in certain areas in China. You've got a lot of, you know, simmering hostility, uh, a, a lot of uh, people who are ready to fight at, at the drop of a hat. Um and it's really important to know, you know, without getting into the, the even ongoing contemporary politics of this, but um, both uh, significant actors in Japan and China wanted this war to happen. Yeah. Uh, both sides were ready to do this. Um, on the Japanese side, you know, you've got the military leaders who are pushing against the political leaders of the country trying to initiate the conflict. The military leaders were really ready to, to go to invasion, full invasion. Uh, on the Chinese side, uh, there was a desire for the, I mean, they wanted to repel the Japanese, but they also wanted to do so, you know, remembering that this is the interwar period, of course, and, um, you know, post World War One, there are these inter you know, there's a League of Nations agreement not to to wage this sort of warfare. So China doesn't want to initiate the war. China wants to defend. Exactly. You know, they want to defend against the Japanese, but you can't defend against someone who's not attacking you. So they were creating opportunities, I suppose, or there were agents who were creating opportunities to escalate conflict. To the point where the Japanese would attack and the the Chinese would be able to repel them. Um, so you've got a lot of really deliberate attempts by both sides to put 
armed forces as close to each other as possible mm-hmm. without saying they're attacking, just putting them really close to each other yeah. in the hopes that something's going to go wrong. Uh, and and it Lung- does. Yeah, and it absolutely did. And the Lungfang incident is is one of these cases, one of these early cases. So, um, and this is whilst there's publicly there's negotiations going on between Japan and China saying, you know, oh, how are we going to resolve the Marco Polo Bridge incident? How are we going to ensure that there's peace and so on and so forth? Uh, and whilst this is happening, um, China is deploying its troops northward towards the Japanese occupied areas. Mm-hmm. And Japan, in response to this, is starting to send soldiers south. Um, and they're doing it through the train lines in a lot of cases. And Lung Feng, the Lungfeng incident happens at the Lungfeng train station, uh, where there is a, a local barracks, you know, of, of Chinese soldiers, fully armed and equipped. And um, these... Um, trying to remember the actual uh, number, but a, a large number of Japanese troops suddenly turn up by train um, in the middle, you know, at the station in Langfang and just start unloading from the train and, and you know, setting up. Um, and so... But setting you know, up defensive positions. Yeah, and and so the, the Chinese, you know, send out an envoy to go and talk to them and say, hey, guys, you can't be here. You need to leave. And the Japanese say, not only are we not leaving, but you need to leave. You need to withdraw from this city, um, you know, which is uh, not at all what they wanted to hear. So no. you know, Chinese, on with Chinese officers, they go back, they go back to seek advice from their superiors. But now, as this is happening, exactly, um, there's a Chinese company commander actually gives the order for his troops to start firing on the Japanese at the train station. And this whole thing just explodes. You know, it becomes full-blown conflict um, where the Chinese are trying to wipe out the Japanese forces, clear them out of the station uh, as quickly as possible in full knowledge that um, the Chinese, sorry, the Japanese uh, will be reinforced uh, and they may, you know, they're at risk of not being able to to maintain uh, the city if if the Japanese def- uh, reinforcements arrive. So it's a real time pressure to 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 get rid of them. Um, and the the outcome, of course, of that conflict was uh, the Chinese defend sorry the Japanese defenders managed to maintain their position within the station um, uh, throughout the night. The uh, in the morning, the Japanese air force arrived. Uh, the Chinese soldiers had no air backup whatsoever, no way to defend against air attack, uh, and were you know they they fled, uh, and and the Japanese took the city. So. Uh, Again, this was a major event in cementing the war. You know, it wasn't the first conflict, but it was something that showed that this war was going to happen. Exactly. Um, So again, I think you can already sort of, from that description, you can already sort of start to see the scenario, the tabletop scenario coming out of it. Um, There's a clear defensive position Mm -hmm. the Japanese have. the Chinese are surrounding or, or encroaching upon that position. Um, but 
On top of that, something I'd really like to be able to capture here is that the 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 simmering uh, risk of conflict that sort of that's that kicks this off. So rather than just launching straight into the battle, uh, I was thinking that there could be a pre-battle phase where the troops are both on the table and able to manoeuvre but are avoiding shooting at each other. Um, the old so, uh, the old West, standing there, hands on hips, right. looking at one another, glaring. But how that's, do you represent that in a mission on the tabletop? That's right, yeah. So I sort of... Look, the, the easy answer, I think, is just steal from other game systems that already do it. <laughs> um, and, uh, look, I, I think, um, you know, I believe... Um, I don't know about contemporary, but certainly old Necromunda had the rules mm-hmm. around this. Um, I think, um, yeah, anyway, there's a, there's a number of game systems that have got uh, this sort of scenario um, baked into them. And what I was thinking was that, so pre-battle you have turns wherein you can act, where you activate units mm-hmm. uh, and if they activate within range, within firing range of an enemy unit, then they need to make an orders check not to fire. Um, And the first side to fire a shot loses a victory point or gives a victory point to the the opponent. opponent. So you're incentivized to try not to be the first to shoot. But by the same token, it's an opportunity to manoeuvre your troops into a position where um, where you can, you know, basically um, have, have an advantage, advantageous starting point. But as soon as that first shot's fired, the game proper kicks off. We go into our, you know, five to six rounds of bolt action mm-hmm. as per normal. But, but the, as you pointed out, this is sort of a race against the clock because as mm-hmm. we know from history... The, the Chinese get pushed out the next day by uh, superior Japanese air support uh, and and additional support coming in. So the Chinese really do have to, in this scenario, need to get rid of the Japanese forces quick smart before the game ends, um, which is made particularly tricky in that the Japanese, of course, knowing bolt action, have the fanatic national rule. Yeah, so look, I've gone back and forth, and I think this is something that we're going to need to play test a fair Definitely. bit. There's, there's something that the Chinese, that I haven't really mentioned, that the Chinese really have up their sleeves here, which is the Japanese came by train. Uh, mm-hmm. They had light arms only, you know, so they're not going to be bringing the tanks, they're not going to be bringing armoured cars, they're not going to be bringing artillery, anything like that. But the Chinese are rolling out of their barracks with everything they've got. Now, Granted, everything that China had at the time wasn't maybe exactly. They're not rolling much. 88s and Panthers. Yeah, no, but they will have access to artillery. They exactly. um, they, they can use um, you know weapons that have AOE effects and so forth. So um, they do have that to their advantage, and also the knowledge that the Japanese player does not have access to that equipment right. either. Of course. Right. But um, the Japanese do have access to, example, for example, mortars or right. machine guns. You know, they're, right. they, so, it's not like they're just rocking out with pure old uh, rifle squads. Absolutely. Absolutely. So anything that's that's easily man portable on a truck, you know, that they would have carried with them. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so the, the, the point I think that we need to probably nut out through, through play testing is, is it feasible for the Chinese to actually eradicate the Japanese inside the train station or not? Because my suspicion is that with the fanatic rule, it's probably not. Um, it's probably easier, easy enough for them to hole up there and, you know, just keep enough people alive to maintain a presence in the station, um, which is going to make it impossible for the Chinese to remove them. So a couple of possible thoughts on that. Um, either victory condition is more about presence in the station than it is for both sides. Yeah. So Chinese forces in the station versus Japanese forces in the station and, and you know, numbers of forces. Or alternatively, um, it could be around number of Japanese units eliminated. So rather than determining yeah. the the victory points on, um, you know, Japanese losses versus Chinese losses or anything like that, like Japanese gain victory points for remaining units and Chinese gain them for destroyed Japanese units or something to that effect. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking something along the lines, um, I've been thinking about this mission in particular a lot in the last couple of days, was if you did something where you had, um, obviously the, the objective grab of holding the station would be worth mm -hmm. points. Um, I think you would definitely need to have uh, kill points as far as mm -hmm. uh, if you destroy a unit, you get a victory point. Uh, but again, I think I think you're right. I think that the Japanese player, rather than maybe getting, see, th the problem is if you start saying, and I might be going down a rabbit hole here, if <laughs> if you start saying the Japanese player um, gets victory points for holding the station and for preserving units, you're going to mm. end up with a Japanese player that just goes down the entire game, and it's it's going <laughs> to be pretty unfun. So much fun, yeah. Yeah, but if you do make it kill points for both sides. Mm. Uh, and you you need to incentivize the Japanese player to actually want to reach out and punch someone. Um, again, I, th I think that it comes down to playtesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, whilst I'd love to keep hashing it out, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely something for us to, to sit down with some models and actually play through and see how it goes and adjust and so forth and then uh, release to the audience once we've, uh, once we've gotten something that, that seems to play well. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's... Um... Let's talk a little bit. Oh, actually, really quick. Again, race against the clock. I think this would be great for dusk rules, as yes. in the visibility reduces over the course of the game. Again, mm -hmm. that's going to make for a lousy end game if the Japanese player is just going down the whole time. But <laughs> yeah. if if you are, it does incentivize the Chinese player not to sit back and shell them, um, yes. you need to actually get in there, which is what historically they would have done. Yeah, um, and and look if. Anyone listening has ideas about how to, how to you know how to make this scenario work? Would love to hear them. Very interested in in hearing people's ideas and input on this. Well, John, let's let's shift then and let's talk about the next uh, mission idea: the Battle of Ludien, um, or the Grind Mill of Flesh and Blood. Jeez, that sounds brutal. Yeah. yeah. So, look, this. Um, I, I mean, I think you can immediately see why this one jumped out to me. Um, With a name like that, yes. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I saw this this reference to a a battle that was known as the Grindville of Flesh and Blood and immediately sort of did a double take and went, okay, what 
why on you know what is this and 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 why is it called that and I need to know more about this because um, God what a horrific uh, image that conjures up. Um, so this um, is uh, first major battle. Oh, sorry, this is sorry. This is a a um, major back and forth that happened during the Battle of Shanghai, which is we've already talked about. It was the, sort of the first major battle of the Second Sino-Japanese War, yeah. um, which goes from you know August November nineteen thirty seven. The um, so Shanghai was chosen as the uh, primary point of initial resistance by Chiang Kai-shek. So he was very deliberate in choosing Shanghai as where, where uh, China was going to resist Japan. So they actually let uh, Japan take Beijing, for instance, with almost no fight um, because they wanted to fight at uh, Shanghai. Right. And there's two main reasons why they wanted to fight at Shanghai. Um, the two reasons for that were, one, it was internationally visible. There's a heavy international presence in Shanghai, and we'll get to that a bit later and, and how that, that plays out. But the second, which is more relevant here, is that um, Shanghai, the surrounding area of Shanghai, is quite hostile to invasion, and it's quite favourable to defence. And yes. so this town, and, and look... Um, you had a crack at saying the name before, um, Lord Yen or something like that. I'm not going to keep saying it because I know that I'm saying it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but this small town is of particular strategic importance because it's on the it protects the the, the flank of Shanghai. Uh, so China put a great deal of resources uh, towards protecting it. And I'm actually just going to briefly read out a quote here um, from from. Um, uh, one of the books I've read on what this looked like. So I think it's really evocative. Uh, it's a landscape cluttered with natural and man-made obstacles, cultivated fields, dry rice paddies enclosed by steep five-foot embankments, poor roads, swampy terrain, and a maze of canals and creeks that was three to seven feet deep and anywhere from 10 to 200 feet wide that fragmented, fragmented tactical formations. Thick reinforced brick walls encircled most built-up areas, transforming them into natural defensive strong points. Small complexes of farms, towns, and villages bristled with interlocking fields of fire, and Japanese infantrymen soon realized that each factory and warehouse was likely to be a center of resistance. Yeah, that sets, so, a, that sets the stage, doesn't it? That's right. So you can immediately picture this really dense environment that you know you can hide there could be chinese troops hiding anywhere um and on top of that it's that the spongy swampy ground means that vehicles really can't traverse it very well so china who's really weak on the vehicle front has a huge advantage here insofar as the japanese can't really bring their tanks to play um and the insurance so Japan still needed to navigate this to take Shanghai. So um, they persisted despite the difficulties. Um, and it's basically so that the nickname comes from the fact that it, it played out very much like um, trench warfare in World War One, where you've just got, you know, these dug in positions on both sides, um, very close to each other, but unable to make any, you know, to, 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 um, 
to push forward, basically. Um, you know, trading back and forth uh, for, for a lengthy period um, and just, you know, soldiers dying en masse uh, with, with no ground being taken or, or, you know, no forward momentum from either side. Um, but this, this area was necessary. As you say, it, it flanked Shanghai, yeah. which, which, you know, a lot of people have very clear notions of what a Chinese city might look like, uh, particularly mm-hmm. just prior to what we would consider the start of normal start of World War II. Um, but a lot of people get a very different idea when you actually show them what Shanghai looked like at that time period. Mm. Shanghai was known as the Paris of the East. Yeah. It was very metropolitan. It was very European. Uh, the the buildings, uh, I have a lot of Knights of Dice buildings mm. um, from their, from one of their uh, ranges. Oh, yeah, range, yeah. yeah, well... I, I, I can use it for cyberpunk. I can use it for uh, interwar games. I can use it for pulp. I can use it for Marvel superhero games because it is sort of generic, older style buildings. and But specifically brick buildings with stoops out front and things like this. But that works for Shanghai. Clearly, I need to get yep. one or two extra pieces to add some flourish to it. But if you look at trams running through the middle of Shanghai uh, with, you know, there are famous pictures of Japanese tanks following trams into the city, just Mm. commuter trams. Um, You look at that and that could be Melbourne at the same time period and Melbourne, Australia, where I live now. That literally, that city could be where I live right now. Those buildings, that architecture hasn't changed. Um, Mm. It is very European. And so when we talk about um, Shanghai being a more suitable uh, place for battle. Um, again, it was sort of the premier Chinese city at the time. Beijing was more traditionally the leader, sh- the leadership cent- center of the country. You know, well, it's it actually, where the imperial was palace Nanjing, was. Yeah, but of course it was Nanjing at this point in time as well. But true, yeah, also, yeah. yeah. Sorry, um, I'll go ahead. I, I don't mean to derail that, but before you start getting ideas of rice patties and you know jungle warfare which often because we have seen so many uh, asian conflict movies a lot of times images are evoked in our minds but to keep in mind that we're a hop skip and a jump from a city that could be straight out of any european australian or in some cases american city at that time that's right and so However, this, this, this sort of rural area to the side, of course, is quite different. So it is that, that exactly. really traditional Chinese countryside that we're looking at there, um, which borders on um, Shanghai proper, which is, as you're describing it, um, you know, the, the, the Paris of the East, they say. Um, so so this, this scenario, um, so I, I think... We've talked about the fact that this is probably the least fleshed out of the scenarios that we're talking about today. And, yeah. and certainly this is very much just an attacker defender scenario. Um, what's of particular interest is the the density of the terrain, the fact that um, by and large vehicles can't access the terrain, although there was a single road into the town, uh, which was appropriate for tanks. So, you know, you may have a single road running through it where you could have Uh, Japanese tanks uh, or tankettes, um, but limited to that space, so not able to to leave the road. Um, I would certainly want to see 
um, guerrilla de deployment um, and, and um, you know, uh, setting uh, the defender, setting up uh, trenches and barriers and so forth. Um, I've expressed this um, in my sort of write-up as having uh, the Chinese as defenders, but in all honesty, it went back and forth so much that you could play it either way. You could even dice off uh, on this one because there was fighting back and forth going both ways. Um, one little little fun tidbit that might be fun to explore is one of the accounts that I read actually describes the use of amphibious tanks by the Japanese in mm -hmm. trying to navigate this terrain. Now, this is really interesting to me because Japanese amphibious tanks didn't come into production until later than this. No, so, much later, when they were during the, the jungle fighting campaigns, um, specifically yeah. when fighting the Americans. Yeah, so... Uh, so I sort of went, well, hang on a second, how could it be possible that they had amphibious tanks when, in fact, they hadn't produced amphibious tanks yet? And um, what I think they're referring to is, is actually a series of prototype amphibious tanks that um, that Japan produced prior to their main run of amphibious tanks, um, which can actually be seen in photographs of um, lines of tanks in China at this point in time. So it's my belief that it's actually the SR prototypes of which there's like, you know, five that ever existed or something mm -hmm. like that that we're talking about here. So if you want to use something really weird for which no model exists... Um, 3D you know, printing, yeah, gang. Yeah, Let's get in it. to build that one out for us, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, this would be an opportunity to do it because, you know, this is... It's really fun to, 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 to discover a conflict where something that doesn't really exist anywhere else uh, was used. And if, if folks look up the, the pictures, for example, of um, the trams with the Japanese tanks and armored cars coming up behind them that I mentioned before, that we're talking the Type 89 Ego, um, yeah. the, the armored car in question is the Type 87, of which I have one painted for my Japanese for this mm -hmm. conflict, and it did prominently appear in the fighting in and around Shanghai. However... Not on this side, given the roads. Um, this was a an armored car with very thin tires. It was yeah. very interwar. It is what it looks a lot like the uh, some of the early British armored cars. In fact, it's modeled after them, um, mm. the Vicar Crossleys. And so, it, this is not a, a mission where you would use that, for example. No, but well, I know that we're a little pressed for time here, so I maybe just launch into the final yeah. scenario here where you would use that, um, which is the defense of Suhang warehouse. Mm -hmm. Now, this one people might have heard of because, perhaps, uh, if you've been following the um, 2020 global box office, you would know that a Chinese movie, The 800, mm -hmm. was actually the top of the box office, the global box office in 2020. Now, that might not be much of a uh, an achievement given 2020 the state of cinemas in, in 2020. However, however, uh, it was a film called The 800, which uh, is a depiction of the defense of Silhung Warehouse. Um, and you know, for anyone who's interested, please watch the first 20 minutes. Um, Really great. You, you can probably skip the rest, but, you know, <laughs> at least mm -hmm. watch the first 20 minutes because um, it gives a really interesting view of what Shanghai at that point in time would have been like. Um, so 
the defense of Sohong um, warehouse is one of the final Chinese actions in the Battle of Shanghai. Um, the the soldiers who participated are, are known by a lot of different names: the Lost Battalion, the Suicide Battalion, the Eight Hundred Heroes. Mm. You know, very famous, um, and and they've been held up as almost you know mythological. You know, very big deal um, heroic action. Um, Especially because, since there weren't eight hundred of them. No, there were not. There was something I think it's something like four hundred and twenty-three or four hundred and thirty-two or something like. You know, it's just over four hundred soldiers, uh, and in fact, it was a deliberate deception to say it was a uh, it was eight hundred of them. Um, but these were the German trained. That's right. So it was the eighty eighth. Yeah, eighty yeah, eighth division. Yeah. Yeah. Now. In, in creating this scenario, I've said, hey, it'd be interesting if you could only pick from the veteran German-trained units to to do this. Um, in reality, the, the 88th had been, you know, just completely devastated by the, the Battle of Shanghai. So I don't know to what extent there, there was new soldiers in those units. But the fact remains, it was the 88th Um that uh, that made up the 800 heroes, or the 400 or so soldiers of the 800 heroes, mm-hmm. um, and the actual action was particularly interesting insofar as it was absolutely a political action uh, or an action of political propaganda. So this was during the withdrawal of uh, Chinese troops from Shanghai. Um, but as it was happening, so as I said earlier, you know, the reason that Chiang Kai-shek chose to defend Shanghai was because it was publicly visible. Uh, it was it was internationally visible. Yeah. Um, and there was a plan for um, signatories of the Nine Powers Treaty, you know, so um, League of Nations stuff, uh, to meet in Brussels um, to decide how they were going to how they were going to respond to the Japanese invasion of China. And Chiang Kai-shek was worried that if the fighting in Shanghai was finished by the time that that conference happened, um, everyone would think that the war was finished and it would be a lower priority because the, you know, the battle goes into the countryside, the international um, spectators can't see it anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's less of a visible problem. So he wanted to keep the war in Shanghai going whilst that conference was happening. And so they created this extremely visible presence. They chose um, the the Sihong uh, warehouse because it bordered with the international concession. And this is why I would suggest people watch the film The 800 because it has this wonderful shot of just the devastation in Shanghai that then pans around backwards and shows the international concession in full swing, full of light and life and people standing just across the river watching this full-scale war. Um, and it, it, the, the contrast is amazing. Um, and really well captured in, in at the start of that film. Um, so the warehouse itself you know, sits on a river that uh, borders the international concession. Um, it was already a, being used as a, a headquarters by the Chinese, so it was well-equipped, well-fortified, uh, massive concrete building um, sitting there. So um really good for defense um and they put this this um uh, you know battalion of, of chinese soldiers in there to defend just for a few days just to keep this fight going um 
of particular note as well was the there was a, a, a there's been a lot made of the fact that they managed to raise a Chinese flag over mm-hmm. this. So you know again, Shanghai was almost or the the Chinese section of Shanghai was almost entirely occupied by the Japanese at this point in time. So the Chinese presence was almost invisible. Um, and there was actually a Chinese girl guide who um, snuck across the bridge to bring a flag to the Chinese soldiers who raised it above the warehouse and held it there throughout the duration of this conflict, um, of this battle. And, you know, the film again, or films of this, make a big deal about this flag being there um, because, you know, it indicates that there is still a Chinese presence in Shanghai. Yeah. So in looking at how to represent this on the tabletop, uh, I think a couple of things are really important. One is to have a well-fortified building or buildings mm-hmm. or Chinese position. Uh, it's really important for the foreign concession to actually exist in this case, so um, or at least to allocate a board edge to the foreign concession and yes. say this is where the foreign concession is. And the third thing is to have that flag be present at the, you know, in a, place that is visible to the foreign concession because that's what's important so the chinese are trying to maintain this flag keep it visible to the foreign concession uh and the japanese are trying to tear it down so basically eliminate the chinese from the area or eliminate the the sign of their presence um my feeling is that because of the way the bolt action building rules work, it'd be really hard to do this with the full scale warehouse. Yeah. Because of how artillery bombard oh sorry, um, yeah. Artillery and, and HE works with buildings, like, you know, if you hole up in a building yeah, no. and you're getting shelled, you're dead. I'm thinking uh, rubble would be more appropriate. Even though it yeah. may not literally be rubble, I think having more difficult terrain rules uh, and representing maybe that this area was a little more, was a little rougher than it actually was might be the way to actually have this work on the tabletop. Yeah. Look, I mean, my thoughts are certainly that the warehouse itself is less important than the idea of maintaining a Chinese presence visible to the foreign concession. I, I suppose this is where you sort of, negotiate the historical side of the the scenario with what can be played or what will play well um and you know the chinese picked sihong warehouse but they didn't have to it could have right. been anywhere it was exactly what's important is that they maintained a visible presence in shanghai and that's what should be the objective here is the chinese are trying to maintain a visible presence and the japanese are trying to eliminate that visible presence um only other things I would say are obviously you want city terrain for this. Um, and uh, because we're saying veteran Chinese only, um, no 14-man no and experienced squad, I'd say go for free fortifications instead of that. Yeah. Um, Chinese shouldn't have artillery or vehicles or anything like that. Um, Japanese would be able to use anything, encourage you know tankettes and armored cars and so forth, uh, but they should not be using artillery or air observers because uh, of how close they are to the foreign concession. So again, this is something that actually happened where they did not use those uh, because they were worried about hitting the foreign concession. Right. But if if you are worried about, you know, that making this 
difficult for the Japanese. I mean, dramatically in this in this mission uh, or in this in real life, it was the Japanese third division that repeatedly assaulted the warehouse using, mm-hmm. you know, regular small arms. But they also had flamethrowers, grenades, mm-hmm. um, type 94 tankettes, type 89 tankettes. Uh, sorry, full-size tanks and lots of other gear uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, so there's plenty that you can use as the Japanese player to assault. Uh, t- in fact, huge chunks of that book. So yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, this this is the of the missions, and I think all of your missions are uh, very cinematic. I think this is, and partially, I think because I think of it in terms of the 800, I think is probably the most cinematic. This is the Saving Private Ryan of these missions. Yeah, look, it's, um, again, you know, just word to anybody who is looking to watch the 800, um, super historically inaccurate, and also some really problematic uh, nationalistic stuff in there that, that I'm pretty uncomfortable with, but... Um, some amazing visuals that I think shows the conflict in Shanghai in a way that it's really hard to convey with just words. Agreed. Agreed. Well, John, clearly you have put a lot of time and effort into these missions and a lot of research to represent these on the tabletop. I mean, just so many historical moments, and I'm sure you could have pulled another half a dozen out to a dozen, uh, given, I mean, just how rich those books that you mentioned earlier in the cast are. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've got many, many more ideas. So if people are enthusiastic about this stuff, uh, I am hoping to create um, a lot more scenarios um, from, from further into the war. Um, So, you know, please do let us know if you're, if you're keen to hear more. I'm keen to hear more, and more to the point, I'm looking forward to actually playing these with you very soon. Uh, As I mentioned off-air, I've pulled my Chinese back out, and I gleefully realized um, at at some point in a end-of-school-year, lack-of-sleep haze, I finished painting every single part of my Chinese other than a few bits and pieces on some of my gorillas. So uh, my Chinese are going to be fully ready to rock. I mean, they were good before, but now I have even more choices. So I'm very excited to, uh, to play some of these conflicts out. Very cool. Guys, um, I know that we've had a lot of requests to talk about different things on the Ghost Army podcast, and I'm sure this wasn't one of them. Uh, <laughs> but I hope that this has been an interesting discussion for you. I know it's a little uh, academic at times. But really looking at how you can use history to create cinematic, interesting, different tabletop scenarios for bolt action is important um, because we do play a game that is, has had, uh, or its rules have been out for a while. Um, all of the major nation books have been out for a while. We do get new campaign books. We do get, uh, you know, we have a wealth of theater selector campaign book information out there that isn't always used i think it's really important to dig into some of these um if you're looking for something different um rather than saying to warlord hey where's my new armies of book i mean there's a lot of depth out there that you with just a little bit of scratching you can pull out and really enjoy and really livens up and brings your bolt action uh passion back to life um just 
doing a little bit of reading for this episode um, and looking at the, the hard work that John's obviously put in has gotten me super fired up about my Chinese and my Japanese. Uh, and so I'm, I recommend that you do that yourself because just a little bit of looking and uh, it, it's funny how many little itches start to scratch that or start to itch that you need to go scratch. And for those of us who have been doing this a while, that usually ends up with another army or two. But um, <laughs> yeah. Guys, thank you for joining us uh, for this conversation. And John, thank you so much for putting in all the hard work. Uh, and I really am looking forward to playing these. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much. Right on. Well, guys, uh, if you have anything that you would like to say about this episode, if you have any ideas, um, we did mention if you had ideas about how to help with some of these missions, uh, of course, you can reach us at the Bolt Action Alliance on Facebook, or you can find me specifically. Hi, my name is Brad. Uh, I cast dice. Uh, if you go to C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E on Facebook, you can just message that page and you're guaranteed a response. And I will pass anything to John and we will talk about this at length. Um, mm -hmm. as we usually do about all things Chinese in World War II. As I said before, thank you so much for listening, and we hope to have more great Ghost Army podcast content for you in the coming weeks and months. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.
that's the ghost army. 